Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture text that we will be examining today is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. This can be found on page 488 of the Blue ESV Bibles. Those are located in the back pocket cover of the seats in front of you. As always, those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not already have one. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. You said that the words that you speak are spirit and they're life. And so, God, we're asking that you would infuse the power of these words into our spirit, that you would cause us to overflow with life, abundant life, for the hearing of your word. Lord, we pray that it would search us, examine us, change us, transform us, conform us to the image of Christ. We ask this, and God, we ask that you would do whatever preparatory work in our hearts. To, to prepare us to receive what the, your word says. Lord, I ask for myself that you would just enable me to be your messenger this morning, that I would not corrupt uh, the message of your word with anything that is my own, and Lord, that I would, I would be faithful to the text and speak truthfully to your people, God, who you love, your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. Thank you for that. Lord, I just uh, give you this morning, pray that we would have hearts filled with worship as we look to you now in your word, Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're in the third week of our series on the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And um, this, uh, this chapter, or this, the, the beginning verse of our text today, the beginning two verses, have always been very significant to me in defining a lot of things about what it means, uh, what the message of the gospel means But if we were to look at verse 14, the first verse that Raven read, in the King James Version, we would notice a slight difference from what we read in the ESV. Let me just read the King James Version for you. It says uh, in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after that John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, there's the significance. that The King James says the kingdom of God. The ESV says the gospel of God. Now, don't be alarmed by that. There is no significant difference in between the two meanings. This is a strange passage for Bible translators to translate because half of our old manuscripts say the gospel of God. Half of them say the kingdom of God. So how do we look at that? Well, if you prefer the ESV version, the gospel of God, 
you see that the, the, what that is telling us is that the gospel, this message of salvation through Jesus Christ, belongs to God. It, God is, is, is seen as its author, and God, in, in effect, owns the gospel. He is the possessor of it. And Scripture, throughout the Bible, repeatedly affirms this. If you look at verses like uh, Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9, and Revelation 7.10, all of them say something like this, salvation belongs to the Lord, or salvation belongs to our God. And Psalm 62.1 says, from Him comes my salvation, meaning that God is the source, the fountain of our salvation. We've seen already, and we talk about this repeatedly, that this salvation is accomplished by the triune God. It's not just the act of the Son. And how does that work? Well, the Father in eternity past decreed our salvation. The Son on the cross accomplished our salvation. And right now in the present tense, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us applies our salvation. And the, the, the Trinity does this in love to all of those whom he foreknew and predestined. And so to say that salvation is of the Lord simply means this to us. This is what it means. It means that it's that salvation is his work. It's not yours. Man, I thought you'd all just breathe a huge sigh of relief on that fact. It's not your work. It belongs to him. It's the gospel of God. So what does that tell you? It means that your good works will not help you to experience the salvation of the Lord. Your morality, meaningless in, in saving yourself. Only looking to Jesus, as we talked about during the supper, only looking to Jesus because of this good news will save you. Or, if we consider the King James translation, the gospel of the kingdom of God, and we we settle there, we're only realizing that the content of the good news, the gospel of God, is the coming of the kingdom of God. The arrival of the kingdom is what makes the good news truly good. So what is meant when we talk about the kingdom of God? Well, here's what John Calvin said. He said that this term is used because God undertakes to govern his people, which is true and perfect happiness. What what Calvin is saying there is that that God does not just save us so we can run around and get ourselves into a whole new set of messes. He wants to actually govern us, to be king over us, to, to, in the New Testament language, to be Lord over us. And, And what that results in is the only expression of true and real happiness. See, the coming of a kingdom implies a king, right? That makes sense. The coming of a kingdom implies a king. Well, I've got good news for you. Christ is that king. And a bene- I like that. Who did that? There you go. Nita, I need you to move up to the front seat and get everybody kind of... That's great. Absolutely, yay. Christ is that king. He's a benevolent king who chooses us. He adopts us. He cleanses us. And here's the best part. He keeps us. Unfortunately, this idea does not immediately appeal to us in our fallen state. And why is that? Because we live under the delusion that we are free. 
And that God, when he talks about uh, us coming to him and him ruling over us, we see that as, as something he's imposing on us, not something that's going to result in our freedom. We love to think we're free. And that's all we want in this life. Just let us be free. I don't want to be subject to anyone. I don't want to be subject to anything. But the Bible teaches us a very uh, inconvenient truth. And that is this. That no matter where you stand in relation to your creator this morning, every single one of us on the face of the earth are in slavery. Every one of us. And I'm not talking about before the cross, I'm talking all of us are are slaves. The Bible says this over and over in the New Testament. It teaches that we're slaves to either the flesh and sin or to Christ and righteousness. Even when we speak of this so-called silly thing that we imagine as free will, and we boast about our freedom to choose, we are completely deceived. Because here's the reality. Because your nature is fallen, apart from Christ, you have absolutely no freedom to do anything but sin. Did you know that? You have no freedom at all to do anything but sin. Because if you did have freedom, how come you haven't been choosing righteousness? Because you can't. You're in slavery to sin. Even the best that you and I have to offer, our righteous deeds, our charity, is what the Bible calls filthy rags. The best that I can bring and lay at the feet of Jesus in and of myself is nothing but garbage. Nothing but that which must needs be discarded. I love Spurgeon's quote. He said, Free will I have often heard of, but I have never seen it. I've always met with will and plenty of it, but it's either been led captive by sin or held in the blessed bonds of grace. So with Spurgeon's quote, I must ask you, I have to ask you, to what are you enslaved? What holds your will captive? Let me encourage you that slavery to Jesus Christ is the only place where you will truly find freedom. Now this is why the good news of the kingdom, the good news of God's governance and His rule is a joyous announcement. I have proven since the day I was born that in and of myself, I cannot rule my mind. I can't rule my will. I can't rule my emotions. I can't rule my body. I can't rule my desires. But guess what? The king has arrived and he's placed me under his gracious care. And now he rules over me. And by ruling over me, he is he is progressively purifying me. Man, that's good news. I love that the Lord is in control. I love that he's king enthroned over this fallen person. And he's changing me to conform to the image of Christ. And he does this. He he does this in me. He does this in you, if you're a believer, from inexpressible love that flows or that results rather in an outflow of mercy. What I mean by that is he refuses to give me the punishment I deserve. Let's take one of my favorite polls that I like to take. You guys know I like to take polls. So let's take a poll. How many of you deserve punishment and not mercy? Please raise your hand. Let me see. Let's check the scan for liars real quick. Okay. But he doesn't only give me mercy to, to, so that I avoid what I justly deserve. He lavishes me with his grace. 
And that makes me the recipient of goodness and blessings that I absolutely do not deserve. Let's do it again. Anybody else? Anybody else? Getting mur- I saw one hand. Boy, man, you guys are missing the whole gospel. If you don't realize that you're getting goodness and blessings that you don't deserve. But don't make any mistake about it. This is, this is a real rule. He does rule over us. He is in charge. But his rule brings joy and it causes us to know him as a friend and not a tyrant. This is what uh, John said in 1 John 5, 3. He said, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now there's the rule. He is in charge. He makes commandments. We are to keep him. That's how we show that we love him. But then he says this, and his commandments are not burdensome. No, when I obediently obey Christ, it results in life and not weight, not burden. When Jesus makes himself known with the proclamation in Mark 1.15, he says, first of all, that the time is fulfilled. And th- what he's saying there is that th- this moment in history, was the consummation of all the promises of the Old Testament. Everything that was necessary was fulfilled so that this kingdom could come. All of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, was pointing to this very moment in time. All of Israel, God's chosen covenant people, all of them were waiting for this moment's arrival. Think about what had happened since Genesis. The law had been given on Sinai, showing people both the holy nature of God and their own fallenness. The covenant was made with King David with the promise of an everlasting dynasty that would never end. The prophets had foretold of the Messiah and his coming. John the Baptist had even appeared. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And and he he took the places as the Messiah's herald and his forerunner. And now Jesus shows up and he himself had been baptized, anointed by the Holy Spirit and tested by the devil. And now John the Baptist, in this first verse we learn, he's finished his course. He's fulfilled his ministry. He's arrested by Herod Antipas, who would soon become his executioner. Now Jesus appears seemingly out of nowhere. And he begins to preach. Jesus A.B. Simpson said, was beginning his ministry at the very moment which all preceding moments had prepared. Everything was ready. So Jesus went public. He began his ministry among occupied Jews, occupied by the Romans. Those Jews were longing for the Messiah, and the world, because he appeared, would never be the same. Now, there are two Greek words that are translated time in the Bible. Greek is a much more complex language than English, as I'm sure you know. And, uh, and so, uh, what we just translate as the word time, there are two meanings, or two words, two meanings. The first Greek word is chronos, and it refers to the moment by moment passing of time. If I were to ask you what time is it, or, or what time are you coming over, that would be chronos. It's just the moment by moment passing of time. What we want to focus on this morning is the second word, which is kairos. And Kairos uh, 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 refers to a specific moment of extraordinary significance in history. It's when when we look at something that big that happened, we go, now is the time. It's it's finally arrived. And let me show you how this word was used in the scriptures. When, When demons recognize Christ, 
before he cast them out, they would often say to him something like this, have you come to torment us before the kairos, before that moment that is specific to us for our judgment? Have you come to to torment us before that? Jesus would scold the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he would, he would tell them that they could clearly forecast the weather, but they were unable to clearly discern the signs of the Kairos. This, they're missing the big moment. They, they, they can understand if it's going to rain or whether it's going to be hot, but they don't know that, that something significant had happened among them. So what I want you to understand as Bible-believing Christians is that the arrival of Jesus Christ on the scene is the absolutely most important kairos the world will ever see. Him showing up, stepping into human history, it doesn't get more significant than that. This is the big one. This is this is the thing that changed everything. His arrival was so important that it literally split time in half to B.C. and A.D. made a huge difference. Long after every politician... Long after every war, long after every human achievement are forever forgotten, we will sing his praises for the salvation that he accomplished for us when he stepped into time. But there was a small problem. Though this was the time, and theoretically all of Israel was waiting for this moment, the the nation itself at that time in the first century, they had many various and differing expectations of what Messiah's coming would mean and what it would look like. They had different interpretations of what the texts were saying. Most thought that he would show up and deal militarily with the Romans who were occupying them and that he would restore Jewish sovereignty and Jewish superiority in the, in the world. And they certainly thought that if he were to come and rule over them, that he would rule certainly by the Old Testament, Old Covenant precepts and not by this thing called grace. So upon his appearance and his announcement that the time was fulfilled, he does a strange thing considering the expectations of the people. Read through the Gospels. He never mentions war. He never mentions revolution. He doesn't seem to concern himself with the Romans at all. He doesn't focus on anything external or political at all. And do you think that there might be an underlying message for God's people in that. Some things that are political are very, very, very important. And we should clearly take a stand on them. But when the importance of temporal political change supersedes that of the truths of the kingdom of God, we got a big problem. And we're going to miss what God is doing right now among us if we focus on the wrong battlefront. Instead, his announcement isn't of something they must do. He didn't say, get ready for war. We're going to take these Romans out. It wasn't anything that they had to do. His announcement was that something was happening. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. He wasn't telling them to do anything in in that announcement. He was saying that the time has come. 
The kingdom, the gospel of which he had preached was arriving. It was at hand. It was imminent. God the king was visiting his people. And this is what John the Baptist had been preparing them for. The kingdom was not only chronologically near, but in Christ Jesus, it was physically near. They had evidence with Christ walking among them that the kingdom was here. The king was here. Christ was the king of the kingdom. And also, he was not just the king of the kingdom in this earthly sense, but he was the God who was coming near to his people. This is what Mark meant in his introduction to, the, to his gospel. When we said, when we read, what we read in verse 1 where he said that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Jewish Mashiach or Messiah. It's, it's Christos. It's, it means that he is the anointed one, the Messiah. And so he's announcing with his gospel, Mark is, that, that, that this is Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah. And then he says this, Christ the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's putting these two realities in. He's come to deliver you and God just didn't send somebody to do his work. This is God himself that has come among us. The kingdom was referring to more than just the spirit's rule within his people. In other words, this wasn't just a purely uh, internal or religious or spiritual thing that was happening. But this kingdom that Christ was bringing will ultimately by stages, result in the restoration of the entire creation. And Isaiah the prophet tells us his kingdom will never end. In Mark 4.26, he gives an example of this perpetual nature of the kingdom and how it grows in stages. It says in this short parable, he says, And he said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, he at once puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Let me tell you something. The, the seeds of God's kingdom, his cosmic kingdom, which will, which will one day uh, envelop the entire earth, The seeds have been planted and the day is coming where there will be a full harvest of this kingdom. And this good news, while it wasn't based on human action, the announcement of the good news that something had happened required a response. But it's interesting, as I mentioned, the response that was required wasn't the taking up of arms or the engineering of some political change and kicking Rome out. Those that heard it, Jesus said, must repent and believe in the gospel. What Jesus is saying is the, the, the change, the response doesn't happen on the battlefield. It happens in the heart. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear Jesus saying to, to enter into the kingdom, you must repent. But a lot of us have really uh, unbiblical ideas of repentance. Part of it is that we confuse repentance with penance. And penance, according to the dictionary, is voluntary self-punishment that is inflicted for having done wrong. 
when you make yourself pay. Martin Luther used to do all kinds of things because of his own sin before he found the gospel. He would beat himself with whips and he would he would spend the night in the in the winter air just with no blanket just to, just so he could punish the sin out of himself. And a lot of times that's how we look at and maybe lesser degree of course, but that's how we look at repentance. We see it as penance, something we got to do to to, you know, make our wrongs right. Penance is also also a Roman Catholic sacrament in which a member of the church confesses their sins to a priest and and by doing so is given absolution. But I want you to know that those two definitions have nothing at all to do with biblical repentance. Repentance has nothing to do with self-punishment. It has nothing to do with groveling before God or even a priest for crumbs of mercy. Penance is a work that we do to earn our salvation and that's why penance is, is a mess, because you cannot earn your salvation. We've already talked about that several times just this morning. But the Greek word that is translated repentance simply means a change of mind. Now, when I say a change of mind, I'm not talking about when you set out for Burger King and you wind up at McDonald's because you changed your mind. The, the change of mind that we're talking about is more enlightened. It's more, it, it, it springs from a deeper and more real conviction, the change of mind. When we, when we repent, we change our mind from thinking that we should govern our own lives and we come willingly under God's gracious care. We stop thinking that there's lasting pleasure and satisfaction in sin and we realize we can only find true rest for our souls in Christ alone. We stop thinking of God as an enemy who's out to get us and realizing that he is becoming our father through faith, offering us his love. And these new realities are central to the message of the gospel. And that's why Christ instructed his hearers in in the light of their repentance to believe in the gospel. When they change their mind, they've got to believe in a whole new set of realities. And so believing in the gospel is that reality. And this belief isn't simple mental agreement when we talk about belief. Like if I asked you, do you believe the ocean's big? Every one of you would say yes. If I asked you, do you believe the sky is blue? Every one of you would say yes. This is an entirely different kind of belief. This kind of belief is the kind of belief you have uh, in, in, when you board a plane. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Probably, I know there's a few weirdos out there, but probably none of us have ever boarded a plane and asked to see the pilot's license. Raise your hand if you ever have. I didn't think so. None of us, when we get to the airport about to get on a plane, none of us have ever insisted on doing a thorough inspection of the aircraft prior to departure. None of us question the laws of aerodynamics that allows a multi-ton vehicle to take to the air so it can take us from Lubbock to Detroit or wherever. We just take our seat, confident that we'll get to our destination. Belief that is talked about in the Bible here is trusting our very lives to the fact that Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. I don't, I don't ask to see Jesus' license. I don't inspect the cross. I don't try to figure out all the scientific mechanics of what has transpired. I just trust Jesus. 
We trust that He is qualified to make us righteous. We believe that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, as Richard Sibbs said. And we, we recognize that Christ can get us safely to our final destination. Belief in Christ is never passive. It is active. It requires a response, and it always has. And repentance is the first response of a believing heart. You have to let go of something before you can embrace something. And this has always been the heart of the gospel. Paul tells the Ephesian elders the, uh, the, the gospel that he had, preached, he had preached to them always included these two ingredients of repentance and belief. If you look at Acts 20.21, uh, 20, he says this, testifying both to Jews and, of, and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith or belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so many of us today think that the purpose of the church is to persuade people to join us. It becomes a numbers game in which we compete with all the other churches to see if we can have more people than them. And because of that, people assume that bigger churches are better churches simply because there are more bodies present. But what if you find that the church you thought was you know, okay because it was big was really just a mile wide and only an inch deep? Are we... Truly, with those kind of values, bigger is better, are we truly paying attention to how the Bible says that God measures our success in living out the kingdom? Jesus himself, in one of his last things he said before ascending to the Father, in Matthew 28, said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus in this passage did not say, go ye therefore and plant big churches. Right? Not what he said. Jesus did not in that passage say, uh, go ye therefore and, and um, try to get people to say a sinner's prayer. He never said it. Some of you are still really into that. That's not what he said. He said to go, therefore, and make disciples. And how does he define making disciples? He says, we make disciples when we teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we're to make disciples. And in and, 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 and doing so, we're to teach them what Jesus has commanded so what does it mean to make disciples versus getting people to say a prayer and join a church? Well, it requires these things. It requires close relationship. We talk about it here all the time that the, the most effective people in making a disciple smell like sheep. Now, I don't mean that in the literal sense. You're like everybody's checking their armpits and things like that. I don't mean you smell like sheep in the literal sense. I'm saying you are so close to the people that you love and are serving in the gospel that you begin to, to um, uh, you know, you begin to carry the aroma of their needs, their burdens, their, their hurts, and, and their questions, and all of those things. It requires close relationship, but it also requires honest communication. It requires submissive hearts, and sometimes it requires correction. Listen to me. The, the process of building a church only through numbers and giving people what they want, and that's the easier process. There is more blood spilled in the process of dis discipleship than there is when, than when you're just building numbers. 
Disciples making cannot be done quickly. It takes time to teach someone to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. You know how I know that? You want to know how I know that? That takes time? Because I've been following Jesus Christ for almost 35 years and I still haven't figured it all out. It takes time, right? And so it, it takes time for us to take all this, this information and to, and to give it to other people. And complicating matters, this is, this is what throws the monkey wrench in the whole thing, folks. Complicating all these matters is that all of us are to be making disciples. All of us are. And yet, at the same time, all of us are to be disciples. You can't have someone that graduates from the school of discipleship, so now all they got to do is disciple other people. Anybody who is trying to disciple you that isn't being discipled himself or herself is not worth your time. We all need people speaking into our lives, encouraging our faith, and yes, even confronting our sin. But this method is what the Master commanded for the building of the church, the kingdom of God on earth. So after Jesus proclaims that the time is fulfilled, he immediately begins to recruit disciples to follow him. Think about that. Think. Jesus said the time is here. Repent and believe the gospel. So he didn't throw up a big, big top tent and get thousands of people into it and preach a, a lowest common denominator gospel message and get everybody to come forward with weepy eyes and, and bow at an altar and repeat a prayer after him. That was not what Jesus did. He proclaimed a message. He brought the word. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then what did he do? He found men that he could train what that really, really means. Jesus didn't invent the idea of discipleship in his day. He didn't say, oh, you know what? I got a great idea how to do this kingdom of God thing. In fact, there were before him, during his time and after him, there were many rabbis roaming Israel with their own, uh, you know, stable of, of, uh, of disciples. What was unique about Jesus was that he handpicked the men who want, he wanted alongside of him. He, uh, the, he wanted learning from him. The other rabbis had a complicated admissions process with tests. It wasn't easy to get into the top rabbinical schools of guys like Gamaliel or Hillel. It was probably like getting into Harvard or Yale or Princeton now. And this is why when Paul presents his resume to an angry crowd of his countrymen, he mentions that he was tutored at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the top rabbis of his day. And what a glorious thing it would have been, however... If we ourselves had been chosen by the one who created the heavens by his wisdom, if, we, if that man had chosen us to learn in his school, wouldn't that be great? Well, guess what? If you're a believer, that's exactly what has happened. And did you notice that if you're familiar with these stories of Jesus picking his disciples, he didn't go hang out at the seminary to find people to follow him. Nope. He picked blue-collar, regular Joes like you and me. That's who you chose to follow him. Now, do you find that encouraging? Yeah. You don't have to be super qualified. You just have to, you just have to be the recipient of the love and the call of Jesus. So here we have in our story today, Jesus walking beside the Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers, Andrew and Simon, and he called out to them, follow me. And what's so weird is without any hesitation whatsoever, the Bible says they immediately left their nets, just dropped them, and followed him. We learn in John's gospel that Simon and Andrew were already acquainted with Jesus. 
But this call took things to a whole nother level. He gave the promise that they would still be fishermen, but he said, from now on, the catch of the day is going to be souls. Follow me. Their obedience, I want you to see this, their obedience was a big deal. I used to think that being a fisherman in first century Galilee was a low-end job, kind of, you know, just, uh, you know, poverty-level job, but this is not at all the truth. The Sea of Galilee had within, it still does, fish that could not be found anywhere else in the world. And so what would happen is these guys actually uh, caught these fish and exported them to other countries. This means that, what, and, and please let this sink in, this means at the call of Jesus, they abandoned lucrative business and obeyed. They just dropped their nets and followed Jesus. Next, Jesus finds two more brothers, James and John. They're in their boat with their father, Zebedee, and some of their hired workers. Hired workers, that's sign of a little bit of affluence. If you can hire employees, then, then you're probably doing a little bit better than the average guy. And again, Jesus calls, follow me. And what happens? They immediately leave a lot. They leave their father. They leave their workers. They leave their boat. I can't name you one Texan that would leave their boat for anything. Just kidding. But they leave their their father, their workers, their boat, and their businesses, and they follow the master wherever he leads. And everyone knows the story. Most of us have been raised in church about Jesus calling and saying, follow me, and they drop their nets and leave their father, and they go follow him. But have you ever thought about this? Where did they follow him to? I'm not talking about an immediate moment. Where did they follow him to? Once they heard the call, follow me, where did they follow him to? Well, Andrew followed him until the day he was crucified. Not Jesus was crucified, until Andrew was crucified. Solomon, or Simon rather, also followed him until his own crucifixion. James followed him until he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. John followed him into old age after many persecutions and exile on the Isle of Patmos. And he obediently wrote four of the 27 books of the New Testament. But even then, they didn't stop following him. Because after after their death, they followed him to the glories of heaven and eternal life. Once Jesus makes his call, once he says, follow me, it's an it's a eternal assignment, not even a lifetime assignment. You follow him forever, and you cannot do anything better with your life. So here's the critical question. This is critical. Please give me your 100% of your attention. Have you heard the call of Christ? Have you heard him saying your name? saying, follow me. One of the ways that you'll know if you've heard his call is if that call has cost you everything. Luke says in Luke 14.33, so this is Jesus speaking, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, If you cling to the things of this life and this world, you're not a a, a disciple second class or disciple third class. You cannot be his disciple if your hands are filled with the garbage of this world and neglect the gold of heaven. 
you can't be a disciple. A.B. Simpson, again, he said, Christ calls men who have something to give up. Abraham gave up his country. Moses gave up a throne. Elisha gave up 12 yoke of oxen. What have you given up for Christ? Ask these men, he says, if they regret their sacrifice. When all earth's honors have faded, all earth's palaces are dust, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever, quoting their Daniel 12.3. See, the idea, when you hear Jesus' words, anybody who doesn't renounce everything, the idea is not that you have to immediately liquidate everything and show up to you know, uh, church next week in a burlap sack and you know, living on the streets because you've sold everything. That's not what it says. And Matthew Henry clarifies the meaning of renouncing all for Christ for us. This is what he says. He says, those whom Christ called must leave all to follow him, which is what we've been saying, but, and by his grace, he inclines them to do so. In other words, a working of of God's grace in our heart makes it easy for us to loosen our grip and let the things of this life, of this world, go. And he said, in his clarification, he says, not that we must needs go out of the world immediately, but I love this phrase, listen, but we must sit loose of the world and forsake everything that is inconsistent to our duty to Christ and that cannot be kept without prejudice to our souls. So examine yourself this morning, have the courage to do it, and ask yourself to really know if you're sitting loose to the world. What is there right now in you that is inconsistent to your duty to Christ? What are you keeping that is prejudiced against your soul's best benefit? Let me remind you, That nothing in this life, by a distant billion miles margin, ever compares to the worth of Jesus Christ. The solution to a heart that clings to things of this world instead of Jesus, I think we've heard this word before, is to repent. It's to have a change of mind and believe in the gospel. To have confidence that Jesus is enough both to save you, and here's what we need to hear in America. Jesus is not only enough to save me, Jesus is enough to satisfy me. Amen? All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him, and in His presence, daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. I surrender all. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. God, you know those of us here that have have clung to things of this life, things of this world. We still have our nets. We still have our boats. We still have our relationship to our Father. We still have our, our hired servants. We have it all. God, we have our pride. 
We have our unforgiveness. We have our lust. We have our anger. Yeah, you step right into that moment and you say, follow me. Lord, will you just do an incredible work in our hearts right now that we, like those first disciples, can just take what's in our hands and drop it on the seashore of our humanity and follow you, Jesus. Will you just purge us of everything everything that is inconsistent with our duty to Christ, everything that is prejudiced against our soul. Will you lead us to heed your first words and truly, truly repent? To turn aside from our sin. To have a change of mind. To look to you as the greater treasure. Will you help us to believe in the gospel? God, to believe in the gospel as we would believe in a rope that's holding us over a vast precipice, Lord God, would we just believe in the gospel as our only hope, as our only salvation, as our only, as our only path to joy in this life, joy that is deeper than mere giddy happiness, but joy that will carry us through the deepest suffering. We look to you and you alone, Jesus. You are our hope. You are our salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to read a benediction over you. If you'd place your hands in a receiving position. These are the words of the Lord from Romans 14. Paul tells us, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.